Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We are in a series entitled... um conversion, and we are looking at uh, the Beatitudes, or we're not looking at the Beatitudes, excuse me. We, uh, we, last year, we looked at the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount to look at how Jesus looks at every area of our life um, and, and basically says how, how life in righteousness in the kingdom um, fleshes itself out in everyday life. And so, <clears throat> uh, the, like Pastor Lane introduced last week, conversion just means a change of character, a change of form, and a change of function uh, in, in our lives. And that's what Jesus brings in our life as well. And Jesus, in, in, in the last couple of verses uh, of Matthew chapter 5, uh, pa- Pastor Lane introduced that to us uh, in verses 17 through 20, we saw uh, how Jesus shows us that the whole Old Testament law and the, and the commands of Scripture are fulfilled in him, that they're ultimately about him, um, that he brings substance and fulfillment to them, and, uh, and everything in our life is meant to be shaped around him as well. And so Jesus came simply to make complete the, what the Old Testament commanded, okay? Jesus came to make a people whose hearts are alive to God, because that's what conversion is. That Christian righteousness, then, is greater than religious righteousness because it's deeper, okay? It is a righteousness not of outward conduct, only, like rule keeping and those sorts of things, but it is of the inward attitudes of the heart, the character and form and function of our very lives in every way. And so Jesus goes on to show how this complete change in our whole life then works its way out in the righteousness of everyday life. That our, the righteousness of heart brought in conversion works itself out even in the little practical areas of our lives, okay? And this is what conversion is, okay? A complete change wrought in the righteousness of Jesus, okay? And so um, we just looked at a, a transitional season of life in the seniors in 2019. Let me give you a little insight into the season of life I'm into. Uh, so we're in a season in our household right now where we never tire of watching the same shows over and over and over and over again. At least the younger ones of our household, that is. Okay. So um, I, I don't want to give the name away of this particular television show, uh, but it involves three crime-fighting six-year-olds who apparently have magical pajamas, okay? And uh, it's apparently where nighttime is the right time where you can fight crime and every episode has the same plot line, okay? So, uh, so now that song's in your head, right? You'll be mowing this week and it'll be in your head continually. It just does not get out, right? Like those shows. And being the expert of sorts that I have become in this show, okay, here's the general pro- plot line, okay? Every episode, something goes wrong, 
okay? Uh, the main characters encounter the source of this trouble, the protagonists, okay? But here's what happens. Every single one, if you watch this, one of them has their head somewhere else. Uh, one of them functions under some selfish aspect or something's captivated their attention and it sabotages the whole team. And then there's this transition point you'll catch because it's always a time to be a hero, okay? There's this transition point you'll catch and, it, and with it is the coming of them renouncing their particular flavor of selfishness, whatever that is for that, that episode, among whomever that is for that episode, okay? And then they rejoin the team, they give, again, their unique contribution to the team and they restore order, Okay? But let's be honest, that's like all the shows, even the ones we enjoyed, right? Okay, same thing over and over. Because those are the ones you learn things from, right? Okay, all right, for me, Boy Meets World, okay? I learned stuff from Boy Meets World. And every guy, okay, every guy had a crush on Topanga. I don't care who you are, okay? That was, I mean, those are all the same way, right? But this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is confronting the varieties of our self-righteousness, and he's calling us to renounce it for another righteousness, his righteousness, the true righteousness. And specifically, he's exposing the self-righteous religious leaders, okay? And it's easy for us to look down upon the religious leaders, right? All those Pharisees, all those Sadducees, okay? All those things, okay? All those scribes. But anytime we are functioning out of religious externalism, we are doing the very thing they did, okay? We are guilty of the same things they were guilty of. And so it's easy to look down upon them, but, but really we must look at the inward nature of our own hearts. Where are we like this? And so in exposing the self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus is showing us how we often function in these multiple flavors of self-righteousness that miss oftentimes the heart of even what the Old Testament's getting at, okay? Because Jesus roots the righteousness of the law in himself, right? What the Old Testament is saying is not contrary to what Jesus is saying, okay? All right, but, but oftentimes we, in our flavors of self-righteousness, we'll miss the heart of the Old Testament. And ultimately, Jesus calls us then to renounce <clears throat> our self-righteousness for the righteousness that he came to fulfill and to receive it by faith and repentance, okay? And so in this section, Jesus goes, like Pastor Lane did in verses 17 through 20, from a very broad understanding of the law and all of the commandments of the Old Testament, okay, to understand how we're to view the scriptures through him and ultimately as ful the fulfillment and authority behind them. Now he's going to drill down, okay? Into, he's going to get a little bit in our business, okay? He's drilling down to show us specific instances, okay, of our character, okay, and in Scripture of how he fulfills them, okay, the commands. And in this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus is looking specifically at the sixth commandment, which is do not murder, Okay, so let's go there together, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 together. This is what our Lord says in those verses. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and open and illuminate the the truths of your word that we might see and behold the wonders of your mercy and grace therein. Would you um, bring precision uh, to our hearts, um, the areas of unrighteousness that we are abiding in, that we might have the healing and the trust and the grace of your righteousness to flow in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so Jesus then opens this text up beyond what the religious leaders had focused on, okay? To show us three things, okay? I want to give you three really practical things, but before I do that, I want to give you the main point of this message, and this is this, okay? Jesus changes everything about how we think, speak, and act concerning others. Jesus changes everything about how we think, speak, and act concerning others. He's opening up the sixth commandment to us, okay? All right? And he gives us three really practical truths of the sixth commandment. And the first one is this. Our relationship towards other people matters, okay? That our relationship towards other people matters, okay? When a person places their faith in Jesus to become a Christian, the Holy Spirit produces in us a change in how we see others, okay? That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus is getting at here. He encompasses this, the, the authority of the sixth commandment to root that reality. We're going to unpack that. <clears throat> the first quote of Jesus is, is this in verse 21. He says, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you. That is not a quotation of the Old Testament. Jesus is not quoting to us the Old Testament and then opening it up to us. What he's doing is he is quoting their rabbinical tradition and then going to correct that with the true righteousness that is laid forth in the word. We know this because notice he does not say it is written as he has said other other places in Matthew. He says, you have heard it said of old. So Jesus is confronting their long-standing understanding and interpretation of what the sixth commandment means, okay? All right? He's contrasting the original intent of the Old Testament with the popular interpretation of that day of the religious leaders. You see, they had taught that murder is what makes you liable to to judgment. And Jesus is telling his disciples this. It's not just your hateful 
external actions that's condemning you, but your hateful thoughts and insults that seek to destroy another's life that actually makes you liable to judgment. It is your condemning heart that condemns you. It is, it is the heart that Jesus is getting at that makes you liable to judgment. The New Testament, in, uh, the Apostle John shows us this further. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So Jesus deepens our understanding of the sixth commandment. It is not condemning just the act of murder, but the contempt of our fellow man that lies underneath that. Okay? So here's what, here's what Jesus is getting at. Right relationship with others is a part of the sixth commandment. Right relationship with others are a part of the meaning of the commandment, do not murder. So what does this mean? So the religious leaders of Jesus' day, here's how they had lived. And you can see this brought out in how they even interact with Jesus. They had taught that they could subversively undermine the dignity of another, all the while while keeping their hands clean. Okay? All right? Jesus condemns them in this. And in Matthew 23, he says, this is like washing the outside of the dish and ignoring what's inside and, and then calling it clean, right? If you do dishes, okay, and, and, and you're, you're kind of easily grossed out like I am by stuff, right? You know that the grossest part of the dish is on the inside, right? Just leave it sitting like that for a while and you'll see, right? Okay, that's, that's what makes it clean, right? You, you clean the inside of the dish. But what they had been doing so much was saying, don't do this outwardly. And it reduced it to the simple action of the outside, the external, when the filthiest part of the dish that needed to be clean was on the inside. And so here's what we learn. Religion minimizes the sixth commandment to just the act of murder. But Christian righteousness has the heart in view again, remember? And a heart that is full of hatred against my fellow man is a heart that is murderous, is what Jesus is telling me. And a heart that is murderous is far from mercy. It's far from mercy. It's far from conversion. And one of the common ways Jesus repeats in this passage that this hatred and contempt towards man is expressed is through our words. He then moves on beyond our thought patterns and into our words. He uses in verse 22 twice a common slur in that day. And if you're reading along in the ESV, it doesn't, it, it, it translates this. It doesn't, it, it tells the meaning behind it, but it doesn't actually give the term. If you look, if you're in a different translation under the ESV, you see the word in verse 22, raka. Okay. It is a transliteration of an Aramaic phrase during that day. Okay. <clears throat> common, common vernacular in that day, common language was Greek. We have an Aramaic term here. Okay. And here's what this Aramaism was. It expressed a 
disparagement accompanied by anger and contempt, okay? It addressed the foolish, thoughtless, or presumptuous person. And it literally mean, meant blockhead or stupid, okay? Now, if that sounds harmless to you, keep going with me, okay? It was the most common term of abuse in Jesus' day, ver- verbally, okay? And if that doesn't sound serious enough, it was simply a common way of letting someone know that they were worthless, okay? That's what this term meant, okay? It was a contemporary slur, okay? And this is what a slur is. A slur is a threat to human dignity. Slurs stereotype a person to a base assumption about them and then define them and their character by that assumption. It is pronouncing judgment upon another person by subjugating them as nothing less than a personal offense or a perceived evil and then identifying them based on that. That's what a slur is, okay? All right? Slurs are labels of contempt that come out of the heart and defile a man, as Jesus has laid forth for us. So to slur a man in this way with words of contempt is to deny his humanity. And this is why Jesus calls it murder. This is the root of murder. That throughout the scriptures, the penalty for denying and contempt towards the humanity of another is an automatic denial of your own humanity, which is why murder warranted the death penalty here, okay, in the scriptures. But here's not a far-fetched jump for us to understand how this applies to us, but yet serves as a caution to us in this day that we live in a day where giving full vent to our contempt is normal, And there is something about, um, statistically you can study this and see this a lot in the next generation specifically, through another medium like technology or social media, okay, not to condemn those as evil, but just like they can help us, um, help us solve things better, help help us propagate solutions, they can help further our, our struggles and our evils, right? And so there's something about interacting through a medium like technology or social media that makes it easy for us to forget and even forego the dignity of another human being on the other side. And so just look at the comments on social media posts. You can go to KY3 and read the comments and people are mad about stuff. It's like, it's the weather, people. Come on, right? But as one pastor said, in a somewhat crude but appropriate way, I think. Looking for good things online by reading the comment section is just about like sticking your head in the toilet and looking for gummy bears. It's never gonna turn out well, okay? There's not anything gonna come out with that. So just don't do it. Better yet, don't be that person, please, okay? I say that in jest, but with a note of seriousness here to say our thoughts and our words and our expressions towards another fellow man are subject to the authority of the sixth commandment. You feel the weight of that? 
And so our relationship to others matters. And our conversion should bring out a change in our everyday actions, form, character, and function in every way. And so the way we interact with other people matters. The second one Jesus draws out for us is that our anger is destructive to life. Our anger is destructive for life. Uh, The key area Jesus identifies in this passage is anger in this section. Our anger is what leads us to our liability. That's what's at work underneath all of this. You see, anger is the root of murder here. And while there are several terms to describe anger in the scriptures, the most common metaphor used of it is it's like fire. Anger burns. It burns. And if you've been around burning things, burning things rarely go out by just being left alone or ignored. But they usually rage or slowly consume when they're left alone. How many of you ever put a log on at the end of the night when you're camping and you get up the next morning and it's still going and that big log that seems so massive just deteriorated in the night? Or if it's big enough, if you have a bonfire and you're burning a lot of brush and stuff, I think can burn for days, right? Just, just slow consumption. This is the picture that the scripture gives us for what our anger does. That human wrath is usually directed against another person and it's usually only with the motive of self-interest involved. And so one of the clearest indications that we're living by our own form of righteousness is to look at the nature of our anger. To look at the nature of our anger. So that's what Jesus is focusing in on here. If you want to know if you're, if you're living in your own flavor or form of self-righteousness, what does your anger say? Because anger is rooted in self-righteousness. We'll unpack that in a minute. Jesus is clear here. If we burn in self-righteousness, we are worthy of the fires of hell. It makes this clear. So then how do we understand anger? Psychologists say that anger is perhaps the most complex, complicated, most understood emotion that there is. But as we'll see here in just a moment, biblically, we see that anger is much more than an emotion. And that's what makes it even more complicated. Okay? Didn't Jesus sometimes get angry? And didn't Jesus even at times command us to get angry? What do we do with that? And so an entire series can even be done on that very idea of anger alone. But for our purposes, looking at this text in light of what Jesus has come to fulfill in righteousness, I'm just going to look at it from just kind of a 30,000-foot view, okay? Here's a working definition of anger by one scholar by the name of Robert Jones. And I'll give it to you a couple of times because it's loaded. But this is what he says. Anger is this, our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Our anger is this, our whole personed response, active response, of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So anger is something we do, not something we have. Okay? 
It's not just an emotion, but it is a whole personed reaction. Okay? You don't, when you get anger, you don't just get an emotion. You get a whole package of beliefs, feelings, actions, desires, some of which you may be aware of, some of which you might not be aware of, and that rises up from within. So let me give you a few bullet points on human anger from a biblical understanding. Human anger is most of the time sinful. Human anger is most of the time sinful. All you have to do is look at the instances in Scripture to see this. Okay? Human anger is most of the time sinful. Sinful anger acts as judge. It's a, it institutes a moral judgment. Right? It acts as judge. It indicts others. Okay? Sinful anger is subjective. Okay? It's against my perceived evil. Okay? It's very subjective. Sinful anger is about me. It's reactive with my whole person response. My beliefs, my feelings, my actions, my desires. Okay? So listen to some scriptural descriptions and cautions and teachings on anger. James chapter 1 verse 20 shows us that anger, the anger of man is actually contrary to righteousness. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Proverbs show us in Proverbs 16.32, it's not courageous. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is more mighty than he who takes a city. Lastly, probably more, most convicting of all, is Ecclesiastes 7, 9 that likens anger to cardiac arrest. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. And if you are one who is easily ruled by anger or has been ruled by anger, you know this to be the tr truth, right? That it just gets lodged inside of you. And it inhibits your ability to love. And even really self-reflect because its indictment is against others. So you can't self-indict or love because it's all rooted in your heart. It gets lodged in there. And so as one Christian counselor by the name of Edward Welch says, anger specializes in indicting others but is unskilled at both self-indictment and love. Anger will keep you from love. And anger will keep you from a right assessment of yourself. So an honest assessment of our anger shows us how rare human anger actually is righteous. But unlike our destructive anger, God's anger is righteous because his reaction against perceived evil is the standard of righteousness. So his is a righteous anger. Okay, And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's calling his disciples to abandon the notions of self-righteousness bound up in their anger and to take up something else. Okay, And this leads me to the third um, practical thing that Jesus gives us. And he says this, you must seek reconciliation with urgency. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just, we, we, we are not Christian stoics. 
We don't, Jesus does not just tell us to suppress, repress, get rid of certain things without a replacement that he calls out for us to bear, right? He's not saying don't do that, but he's saying this is better, pursue this, okay? We're not, we're not Buddhists, we're not Stoics, we're not just trying to suppress desires, but to lead ourselves in better ones, to do away with self-righteousness to pursue true righteousness in Jesus. And this is what he calls us in our anger, to seek reconciliation with urgency. So, so against whom is our anger directed? Jesus said it's our brother. The religious leaders had minimized this application to just those of the same race and the same household. But as Jesus teaches in other places in parables, this, this has less to do with a sibling or a close relationship, but to an associate or a neighbor. And so after giving instruction on what to avoid, Jesus then shows us what we should pursue. Reconciliation. Be reconciled, he says. In verse 25, renounce your anger and your offense and make peace and do so with urgency. And so it is to not give the offering of Cain in Genesis who offered up worship to God by his own desires and his own demands with anger in his heart towards his brother. Because that is what self, a self-righteous heart does right? It demands God's approval of a standard and God's approval of the offering itself in worship. Self-righteousness tries to force God to sign off on our form of righteousness, even in our worship. But instead, we are to remove all basis for enmity in us all breaks of fellowship, and then enter into worship. Because when we offer up worship in, to God with anger or contempt or enmity in our hearts towards another, it's not received. It's not received. But here's the good news. That mercy is extended. And so Jesus says, make peace Quickly, renounce your own righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. For you will be judged by the righteousness of the judge, who is Christ. And if you stand at the end of your life still holding out your form of self-righteousness and telling God to sign off on it, we will be worthy of the judgment of true righteousness upon us. But Jesus says, Renounce your self-righteousness and take upon, by faith and repentance, my righteousness. And so by word and act, Jesus manifests God's eschatological wrath towards sin. He is the Lord of the last judgment, who denies evildoers, destroys enemies, and even casts into the furnace of fire. And we see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, the similar picture. The same lamb that comes under human judgment is finally the divine exerciser of judgment of those who will despise and reject his self-offering in the end. And so Jesus says, urgently abandon your self-righteousness that is so easily manifest and made known and seen in your anger. 
Because ultimately, the, the, deal is not, the, the issue is not your anger. It's what your anger shows you about your heart and the gospel you've believed and what you've abided in. And so like a, abandoning a compromised structure or building, Jesus says our response is to abandon and renounce self-trust that our anger so easily illuminates to us for the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So let me give you a personal application for, for me here. I come from a long line of what we call in the South hotheads, okay? We're, there's a little more red behind the collar, okay? And my German lineage doesn't help. I don't speak German, but I do know friends of mine who, who, who study German. They tell me there's no exclamation marks in German because you just yell everything. There's no need for it. It's all yelled. It's all exclamatory. And it's, been a re, it's seriously been a reworking in me since I became a believer of God showing me this area of my character consistently over and over and over again. But more recently, God has shown me there are still remnants of anger hidden even in my ambitions. That resentment often can drive my drive, if you will. So what I found is I began to despair this thing. I began to hate it. And I asked him to take it away. And I thought in order to have some, in order to have the character trait of gentleness, I had to abandon or have no anger at all. What I've come to find is this isn't what Jesus is calling us to. There may be sinful expressions of anger you will have to search out and repent of. There might be woundedness in your past that shaped this in you that you might have to let the Lord heal. But more than anything, it might be there because God wired you that way. And that you not need to despair that, but God wants to redeem that in you. So God, Jesus' call here isn't to stop being angry, but to take up righteous anger instead and to trust in another's righteousness. To trade the whole package of our beliefs, our feelings, our actions, our desires for that of another. To conquer sinful anger with righteous anger. And as one that has had God expose this sinful remnant of anger in my heart, hidden in my ambitions, this is good news. God is not out to kill your anger, but to set it in righteousness and sanctify it for his purposes. But it's going to look different. It's going to look different. So how does Jesus change our anger? Jesus, as we've seen, Conversion changes us in, in character, in form, and in function. There's a whole working out of all of life. So G, how does Jesus change our anger? The character of our anger changes. It no longer becomes about us, it becomes about God. As that same scholar Robert Jones says, righteous anger throbs with kingdom concerns. Where there is fervor, there is likely righteous anger. So the character of our anger changes. The form of our anger changes. 
it carries with it the fullness of two qualities, confidence because it's rooted in God and self-control. You see this in Jesus. So the form of our anger changes. And then the function of our anger changes. It labors not just for vindictiveness or vengefulness, setting things right, but it labors for the good of others. So again, fervor is, is, comes to mind. So the, the call then is to trade your self-righteous anger, to trade your self-righteousness for a righteousness of Jesus, for righteous anger. And that anger looks like this. It imitates God's anger. And as, one, as Martin Luther, the reformer, said, it becomes an anger of love. And he described it this way, one that wishes no one any evil, one that is friendly to the person but hostile to the sin. And if you labor to see others freed from the bondage of sin, this is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is what his call is to you. But friends, we must examine our anger where does it show self-righteousness still abounds in us? And where self-righteousness is entrenched, you must abandon it for the righteousness of Christ so that every area of our life might be set in his righteousness, might be conformed character, form, and function after him and his will for our life. So as the worship team, I'll invite them to return a question to end each message in this series is this. Who is the Lord of your life? By what righteousness are you living? Who is the Lord of your life? Are you living in Jesus' righteousness? Or are you living in a righteousness that is your own?